I'm a little sore today because I hiked yesterday with Haddon and that backpack carrier. A couple, two, three miles with the 40-pound kit, I don't know, 35 pounds, something like that. But we had a good time. So if I, if I do weird things up here, that's just probably why. Okay, we are starting out today. Lincoln, you can put that first slide up there. Uh, flip the script. You'll understand that in a few minutes. And I'm excited to jump into this passage. You'll remember that last week and the last few weeks as we started through Mark, Ryan has done a great job of helping us see some really important pieces and themes. Remember how we said Mark, he often, he says immediately. There's immediately. And then immediately the next thing happened and the next thing happened. And uh, talking about these things that Jesus did, right? Uh, I particularly enjoyed last week when this parable of the, or not parable, the story of the four friends that brought the paralytic, right? And a few things that I remembered that were very clear. He gave an illustration of the four friends drop, drop him at the feet of Jesus and they're like, it's up to you now, right? And Ryan's tagline was, you can bring things to the feet of Jesus that you don't know what to do with. I love that because there's a lot that I don't know what to do with. Uh, and then his second piece to that phrase was, and trust him to do the work, right? I have been guilty of dropping it off and saying, I, I just don't know if he'll do it or not. Or drop it off not knowing what to do, thinking I know what to do, and I want him to do it my way. And when he doesn't do it my way, I'm not really trusting that he's going to do the best, right? And then I really loved this when I wrote it down, the trial that this guy had faced, this paralytic had faced, is the reason that he met Jesus, right? The pain and the suffering, all those years, inability. I feel discouraged when my back hurts and I get up in the morning and I'm slow to stretch to start picking up kids. This guy, it's all he ever knew as a paralytic. But it was that trial that brought him to Jesus. That's the reason he sat at Jesus' feet and that Jesus spoke those beautiful words that your sins are forgiven. So we're in chapter 2, verse 13 today. And I, I titled it Flip the Script. We're going to talk about that near the end. But there's a couple of things happening. I'm really excited to jump into this. We'll go through the details of the passage Who's in it? What are they doing? That kind of thing. But there's a meta-narrative, okay? There's an, there's an overarching idea that's flowing through here that I think uh, the Lord has told me to help everyone understand in the room. And I wrote this word, this down. What Jesus does, what he does is always in support of who he is, okay? That might sound pretty simple, but that one hits me pretty deeply. What Jesus does is always in support of who he is. Does that make sense? We'll see a lot of things that he's doing in these passages, but it's really important to remember that that's only supporting who he is, why he came, and the victory we have. Okay? So in uh, chapter 2, verse 13, I'm going to read through this. We have two pieces here. We're going to start with this calling of Levi, and then we'll move on to the second section about fasting. He's asked about fasting. Uh, you might wonder if you look at it, you say, well, calling of Levi. This story is found in Mark chapter 2. It's found in Luke 
5, and it's also found in Matthew chapter 9, okay? Matthew 9 and Luke 5 have just a little twist. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's cool. They add a little bit of color to it. But in particular, they say Matthew. This says Levi. Well, is this two different people? No. Matthew was the Greek name, and Levi was the Hebrew name, right? So it was Mark's choice to go with Levi, the Hebrew name, when he wrote that down. So this is Matthew, the disciple Matthew, the one that wrote the gospel of Matthew, right? That's called, you might already know that. I think it's worth saying out loud. I'm going to read this, okay? The word of the Lord. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and, notice the quotes, sinners, were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay? So can we pray together? Lord, as we jump in, I just ask that your words would flow through me by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would be encouraged today, that your word would achieve the purposes for which you send it. That when we speak it out loud, it will not return void. We are listening, and we ask that you would just change our hearts today, because we want to honor you and receive what you have. Amen. Okay, so first things first. Uh, Jesus starts by doing what he does best, and this is the typical case, right? He, went out, he goes out beside the lake, and a large crowd comes to him, and he begins to teach them. I love that, that... What would you do if you were walking along the side of a lake and a bunch of people came out to you? Oh, <laughs> what is, what's going on here? But Jesus always has compassion. He's always looking for opportunity. There it is. They've come to him, and he is excited to share what he knows to be true, right, and who he is. So he starts there. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, what do we know about tax collectors in this era of history? Were they popular people? Popular with the Romans? Popular with the Jews? I'm going to say no. They were known for a couple of things. A tax collector, there's a lot of reasons why they might have come to the place that they took that job. Uh, it tends to be thought of in opposition of like the Pharisee route, right? If you're coming more religious and more holy, you're probably not a tax collector. Is that a fair statement? Probably not a tax collector. They were responsible for, you know, there were a lot of imports to Rome at the time and uh, the Roman Empire, and they had to collect duties on those that came in, these import taxes. They had to pay income taxes. There were other levies, and you guys are aware that the Romans, they had a heavy financial burden on the Jewish people, on everybody in the empire, but on the Jewish people in particular. So the tax collectors doing their job, it, I would say that was probably stable employment 
from, from what I've studied, right, that they're, they're doing pretty good. Why? Well, because there's always, death and taxes are the sure things in life, right? That's what they say, death and taxes. But also, they were known for skimming off the top, right? You owe 30%. Actually, you owe 32%. Uh, it's not up to you whether that too stays with me or goes on to the Roman government. So they were not popular, and they were known for having um, means on the backs of the other people. So looked down upon, scorned, and that comes out in this passage. You know, they ensured that Rome got the money that they demanded and then lined their own pockets in the process. There's another story that parallels this, and I wonder if anybody can think of what it is. It's in Luke chapter 19. We just read through. There's a couple of main things that happen here. Jesus walking through. He sees a guy. He says, you need to follow me. I'm going to go to your house and have dinner. There's a bunch of people there, and there's repentance. Anybody think of what that is? Short little dude. That's right. Some say he's the shortest man in the Bible, but that's not true. There was Nehemiah, except that's not true. It was actually in Job. It was Bildad the Shuhite. You can use that. Feel free to use that one. You're welcome to use that. So Luke 19, I just want to read this real quick and listen to these parallels, which is interesting. Now, recall that this is quite a bit later in Jesus' ministry the story with Levi, he's called, they're in Capernaum. And that is up near the Sea of Galilee in the northern side of Israel. Down the southern end near Jerusalem, a hundred miles away is about where this happened outside of Jericho. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief, that's right, chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a, quote, sinner. Perfect parallel there, right? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So there's a ton of parallels there, and it's cool to see. uh, It it kind of self-proves a few of these things I've mentioned this idea of a tax collector and who they were and uh, people were not happy about this, this idea that Jesus would go to these people. If he was the Messiah, he would be with the religious people, right? That's where this title comes from, this idea of flipping the script. The things that the religious elites of the time thought, and frankly, probably most of Jewish society, because if the Pharisees were wealthy. They were the ones that knew the law. They were the ones that knew what was going on. They were the ones that could go to the temple and offer sacrifices. They were the ones that could report back what God had, right? Well, what in the world? Why would this itinerant rabbi, this guy rolling around 
messing with people that were the dregs of society, right? It's the exact opposite of what they had expected. And Jesus is really good at that. He's, he's great at the exact opposite, flipping it. What I think is beautiful here is we have to slow down and look at a few of the words. Lincoln, you can go and put that scripture up there if you like, that first one. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. He didn't ask him. Did you note that? And if you look at the other two accounts, he didn't ask Levi. He didn't ask Matthew. He told him. I wonder what was happening in the background for Matthew. What was his life like? Where, where was he in turmoil? And how was he ready? Somehow his heart was ready for this. Because he could have said no, don't you think? He could have said no to this. But Jesus just looks at him and I love that idea. I wish I could experience that. I've had a few of those in my life where I feel like the Holy Spirit just locked eyes and said, do this. Have you ever been there and felt that? Somehow there had to be something special in that look. Follow me. Laura and I have a great connection that way, especially when it comes to our kids. I joke, we, people say, well, how do you keep up with everybody? And I'll look at her and I can, gay, I can say, right? I got four, who's got, you got the six? We got it. who's got the ball? That's the idea, right? But we can lock eyes and she knows if I'm feeling something rough or, and I know if she's feeling something rough. Well, there was something about that when Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. And he gets up and follows him. Luke adds, if you go over to the story of Luke and read through there, it, uh, he adds that Matthew left everything, got up, left everything, and followed him. Uh, we just established, right, that he has this great, he, he has resource, he has means, and he walked away in the moment. Uh, great characteristic of Mark's gospel of that immediate nature, right? And that's what happens. So he picks up and he takes off. The main point here, he, Jesus said, do it. Matthew did it. That's beautiful. Then there's this idea. So the next thing that happens, right? They're at Levi's house. And it says many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples for there were many who followed him. There's again some context. If you look over to um, Matthew 9, he says, uh, let's see, I think that's right. Where he says there was a great banquet. He held a great banquet. So it's more than just, hey, Matthew had a lot of people. A great banquet connotes, like, there were a lot of folks there. And I imagine if you're a tax collector, and it sounds like Matthew was immediately all in. Just like Zacchaeus we read about. He was all in. Hey, if I have wronged anybody, I'm going to pay back four times. A great banquet. There were many tax collectors and sinners that had gathered and I imagine Matthew was using that wealth to, to do this thing, right? And they're all in there together. It's this interesting idea that we're going to see chase through to the second half of uh, this scripture. There's something also to eating, gathering together. Those of you that have been to my house, you know that I love that. It's one of my favorite things is having a big table. And I have a big table. Thank you, Ben Honkin. I have a big table because Ben gave me one. Um, Love having a lot of people around the table and the conversations that happen and the laughter and the share of sorrows, all those things. 
Revelation 3, 19 and 20. Does anybody know what that says? It's a pretty popular verse. If we go over there. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Or King James, I love, says, I will sup with him. I will sup with him. There is something to this idea of intimacy that comes over a meal. Does that make sense? And that's where change starts to happen. And I love that Jesus enters in in that way. He says, Levi, follow me. Oh, also, yeah, let's, let's have a meal at your house. Let's do that together. And let's open up the doors and wide and bring in who we can uh, and share this message. And you can be assured that this is Jesus and his disciples, right? Those that had followed him at the time. So he is at Matthew's house with his disciples when this happens. The other piece in Matthew that is added, I wanted to mention here, which is interesting about this section. Let me go there real quick. I think I have that. Matthew adds right at the end of the section. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Right before that, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice, which is interesting. Uh, it's unique. You've got the Pharisees, you know, you've heard a lot of different ways that that's phrased, but I think of uh, those sneaky guys in the cartoons that are the ones that are always in the background pulling the strings, messing something up, and the good guy has to weave through and figure it out, and then the bad guy comes in again and mess, you know, what was the little Martian guy in Elmer Fudd? You remember that? There's always that guy, the Pharisees, it's like they're always popping up, you know, in the back and they pull the curtain. <laughs> well, what about this? And throwing out the judgments, the religious elite of the day. They're clear to say that the teachers of the law are Pharisees. It's fascinating that they, I would say, seem to lack courage. You watch some of this. Remember, I think a few months ago when I was uh, up here, we talked about the difference in false teachers and truth. I don't know if you guys remember that at all. But one of the characteristics of this false teacher is this idea that they work in dark or in secret or deceptive ways, right? And indirect, there's, there's a way to redirect or miss the, the main thing and look kind of just off to the right or just off to the left. That it might sound good, but it's not quite right. Here's an example. When the Pharisees had an issue with what was going on, who did they ask? Look at it. They ask his disciples. Was he not there? Like, was Jesus not standing in front of them at the same time? Were they not able to get to Jesus and ask him? Because it's his words, it's his thing. But they go to the disciples to say. And you might have experienced that in your work life where you kind of subvert or not not you but you see it where somebody's like well I'm not willing to say it directly but I'll say it in a roundabout sort of way or to someone around the corner it's just a, a unique thing on hearing this Jesus said to them it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick now when you hear that is that revolutionary to you 
Just that, take that statement out of context. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Is that new news to anybody in the room? You might go for your annual checkup. That's great. Way to go. I'm not good at that. But him saying to the Pharisees in response to why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners, and he said it to the, they've said it to the disciples. Well, Jesus had to have been there because he responds, right? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. His plan was not hidden. It was never hidden. It was very clear. I have come to seek and save those who are lost. And it's fascinating to me that the, the, the Pharisees just missed that. Had to kind of hurt a little bit too. If you were a Pharisee that, and my, my guess is that their disposition was, well, whatever, I'm not listening to what Jesus has to say anyway. I'm gonna ask the question, but I don't really wanna know. I just am frustrated that you're not doing it the way I would be doing it, right? It's a fascinating thing. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So here's where that flipped the script. Uh, you really see it clearly. And it weaves into this idea that what Jesus does is always in support of who he is. He did not come to join the Pharisees in their traditions. He did not. He came to show them, and it is in... Where is it? Maybe I have that on down here. He came to show them. Um, there's one spot where Jesus is talking and he says, the, the Pharisees, a little bit of a heated argument with them a little later on and they're like grumbling one more time and Jesus says, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Oh, that's terrible. Who wants to hear that? This thing that you think is important, this thing that you have built, you have nullified the word of God by the thing that you're doing. Dear Pharisee, elite, you have missed it completely. Oh, you pray that those Pharisees would have heard it, that one of them, you think about Nicodemus, like somebody go, I think he's right. I think I've missed it. So he flips the script. He has to figure out ways, and that's why I say that. What he does is in support of who he is. He wants them to see you're not gonna get there on your own. Your works are not going to take you to this place of favor before God. You can't get there. Watch this. There's so many levels of this story. Yes, I want the people around to hear what's going on. I want them to hear my response. Yes, I want the disciples to see me call this sinner. Yes, I want Matthew to be a member of the kingdom of God. Yes, I want the greater Pharisees to see and understand that all of these levels are going on. But the meta narrative is, I died for you. Your works aren't going to get you there. Your dependence on me is what's going to get you there. It, it's about me and what I've done, how I love you, how I have sacrificed for you. That's what matters. Do you see this? And we're going to see it continue as we go through. I wanted to mention, I thought this was cool, I started to say earlier, when Matthew adds that, uh, that Jesus said, hey, Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, that's a quote from Hosea 6.6, 6, right? One of the minor prophets. And I think we've talked about it in prophecy the other day in our um, small group. I would hate to be Hosea and be like, 
thousand years later, people call me the minor prophet. I'm like, well, it didn't feel minor, you know? I didn't feel minor, even though. We just know less about Hosea, let's just say that. His book is not as long as Jeremiah in detail, kind of thing. Anyway, <laughs> so at Hosea 6, 6, listen to this. When he tells them to go and, and oh, did I not mark it? I think I did. Yeah, right, there we go. Hosea 6, 6. Now remember, the Pharisees, they should have known some of this, right? And he's quoting directly, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Listen just from the beginning of Isaiah 6, or sorry, Hosea 6. Well, I'm going to skip forward just a little bit. Where is it? Yeah, here we go. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. He's talking about Israel, right? Hosea is prophesying God's words about Israel. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. That sound familiar? Anybody picking up Jesus in that? On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And then he, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. The Pharisees, living in that sacrifice and burnt offerings world and Jesus is walking into Matthew's house offering mercy you see that it absolutely just flies in his face it flies in their face and he's Jesus was a controversial guy at this moment because he's flipping the script everything you thought the way that you have approached this we, we got to turn that around You've got to understand what I'm looking for. And oh, by the way, it's not a secret. And oh, by the way, it's all throughout the Old Testament, everywhere you look, that this is actually who I am. But you're nullifying the word of God for the sake of your tradition, Pharisees. Okay? So let's move forward. The second section. Uh, you can go to that next one. Let me go back here. You might wonder, well, are these connected? Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No. He pours new wine into new wineskins. So are they linked? Well, let's think about this. They were, the disciples were there at the banquet, 
Remember we talked about this revelation, Jesus likes to come in and dine. That was actually quite different from what the Pharisees did. In the Old Testament, fasting is mentioned a lot, but it's only required in one place in Moses' law, Leviticus. It's required in one place. The Pharisees had created a tradition of fasting twice a week. So that very thing that Jesus said, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. There's another scripture that says, uh, it's Matthew 11, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, this is Jesus, by the way, they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Once again, he flips the script. Pharisees like, you gotta fast, you gotta fast, you gotta fast. You gotta show that you are penitent. You gotta show your, your holiness. Jesus is like, I'm the bridegroom. Let's celebrate. We're gonna eat and we're gonna drink. And you look and you see them do that over and over and over all the way to the Last Supper. It's likely that this day that Jesus called Levi was one of those days that they would have been fasting and instead, Jesus is sitting in the tax collector's house having a banquet. You see how different that is? No one expected that. No wonder they had contention about, well, why aren't you fasting? And John, there's a lot of reasons why his disciples may or may not have been fasting, but I thought this was a good quote. Uh, Matthew Henry, anybody know who that is? Commentator, he wrote a commentary on the Bible in the 1600s. He says, it would be of as ill consequence as putting new wine into old casks or sewing new cloth to that which is worn, thin, and threadbare. Note, God graciously considers the frame of young Christians that are weak and tender, and so must we. Nor must we expect more than the work of the day in its day, and that day according to the strength, because it is not in our hands to give strength according to the day. What he means is that on a practical level, remember there's multiple levels of the story. Fasting at that time for Jesus' disciples, remember, it's like a couple weeks, a couple months that, that uh, they're on the side of the sea fishing and now all of a sudden they're supposed to be operating at the level of the Pharisees as if that were the right level. But fasting twice a week, this wasn't a thing that they even knew to do. Nor was it appropriate in the time because of the bridegroom's presence and that's what Jesus is clear about, right? How can the guests of the wedding fast when, when the bridegroom is there. We went to my nephew's wedding back in April and took all 12 or 11 of us at the time, 1,500 miles to sit there in a tent with my nephew and his new wife and they had barbecue and sweet tea, which I love, and I was not fasting, right? A lot of preparation and effort, but the bride and the bridegroom were there you go and you celebrate them. When he's with you, you celebrate. This is not the time for fasting. So there's that, relatively clear. And then how does that intersect with this last piece? How, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away. That's what Matthew Henry's quote is showing. Hey, this is, this is an ill fit, right? It doesn't make sense even on the fasting level, but that's not what really matters. What matters is, Pharisees, you're trying to make us land in your little tradition thing and that's not going to work out because that's not what I came to do. I'm telling you a new and different way. Uh, technically not new, 
God has always been merciful and gracious and loving and kind, right? We're almost there. It made me think of my favorite shirt. When I was in college, I had this shirt. Laura probably remembers it. It was a kind of a navy and white checked shirt, and I just love that thing. I could wear it wherever, and it got so threadbare that I had to wear a white T-shirt under it. You didn't say anything revealing. Does anybody have that favorite shirt you can think of? Uh, and I finally had to let her go. But there would have been no patching where I would have looked like a quilt. It, it doesn't work that way. The same thing, the new wine and the old wine skins, you, you might know this, but when there's new wine, it's got to continue to ferment as it ages. An old wine skin has already been stretched to the max. You pour new wine in, the old wine skin will burst all of your work to create the wine is gone. You don't do that. No one would do that. That makes no sense. You have a new wine skin that can stretch and expand, right? So there's this new paradigm. Remember how I said there's multiple levels here? The first question for you guys, there's only two. One is, and you can put that up there, Lincoln, the next one. Where are you trying to fit Jesus in to your traditions? Okay? He says it's not a fit. It's not even like an obtuse fit. This isn't square peg and round hole. This is two different playing fields. You have traditions in your life. You have ways that you think about who God is. Are you sure they're scriptural? Are you sure that they're actually the character of Jesus? The most important or, or most popular one is this works base, right? Are you accidentally maybe unintentionally operating more like a Pharisee that you think that your traditions are the thing that's going to get you there versus the work of Christ? Levi, Matthew, when he was called, he didn't do anything to deserve what Jesus gave him. Nothing. The thief on the cross, right? Today, you will be with me in paradise. That guy didn't even have a chance to do a work. He didn't have a chance. A couple more things here. When he flips this script, what are these stories really about? What is that meta-narrative? I think, as I read through there, we're going to see it. We can keep going down the list. You know, up to this point, this is only up to this point in, in Mark, he's called dirty fishermen, he's touched and healed sick people that had leprosy, he's forgiven sin, he's healed paralytics, he eats with sinners, he doesn't fast or observe traditions. All the things you'd think he would not do, he's doing, and all the things he shouldn't do, he's not, right? He's doing the opposites all the way through. All that Jesus does is in support of who he is. Well, shouldn't that also be the case with us? Be really, really, really careful. You're not doing those things to earn his favor. Your life will change because of what he has done. Make sense? I think we fundamentally misunderstand the gospel there. It's not about us and what we should do. It's about him and what he has done. I found this great quote I want to share, and it is Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who my little Haddon is named after. And it goes back to this cloth analogy, right? If there is one stitch 
Think about a shirt, how many little stitches there are, right? If there is one stitch in the celestial garment of our righteousness that we must insert ourselves, then we are lost. If there is one piece that requires you and your righteousness, you're in trouble. That is not how this works. And that's not what Jesus said. That's not why he died, right? He takes our sin from us. He puts on that robe of righteousness. But is it the righteousness that you built? No. Last one is this question. Go to that next one, Lee. And I think this is incredible. Will you stand before God on the basis of your goodness? For one day, right? We know this. If you know scripture at all, there's a judgment day coming. That, that final judgment. Will you stand before God on the basis of your goodness or your righteousness or on that of another? Guys, I'm scared out of my mind if I had to stand there on the basis of my righteousness. I'm in deep trouble but God, right? Isn't that what he says? But God, because of Christ. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's flipping it the whole time. I died for you. Pharisees, you don't need this tradition. You need me. You need somebody that was holy and blameless to stand in your place to bring you home. And he offers it to them the same as he does all those tax collectors and sinners. The quote, sinners, right? Mark's making sure that you realize it's the Pharisees that think of them as sinners. Jesus sees them as children that can come home. So those are the two things for you today. I want you to take that home with you. Where are you trying to fit Jesus into your tradition? Serious, take a look this afternoon. Look at your life. What are the things that you're doing that you're like, maybe you're struggling with, and usually that's the case. Usually you'll find that there's a little burr in your saddle or the thorn in your flesh that Paul talked about. But there's that little thing that's bothering you because it's just not working. Is that you trying to fit Jesus into your plan, to your tradition? Or have you set your life with him as the bearing? And then this one. Consider that deep. Will you stand before God on the basis of your goodness and your righteousness? Please don't. I'm telling you, don't do that. Accept Christ. Let him do that for you. He died for you to do that very thing. Can we pray? Lord, thanks for today. Thanks for this word. Uh, thanks for Mark. Thank you that, Jesus, you called Matthew, that he could be a terrible sinner and uh, flip the script, all those things, but that he would then go on to be a faithful disciple, likely martyred and wrote one of the four Gospels because you saw him, asked him to follow. Help us, Lord. Help us understand this rightly, that it's not about us. It's not about our abilities and our works. It's about you and your sacrifice and your love. So we pray in Jesus' name.